RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. Well, friends, I'm sure you're aware that Dr. Dan had his last episode with us. I have been looking for a new co-host, um, but it's it's not an easy process. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into this decision of who to pick, and I want the choice to stick. I, I don't want to have uh, more turnover. Um, so for now, I think it's just going to be me. And um, for now, I think I'm not going to only look for doctor guests so that I can fill the role of RNMD um, relationships. And if we have to evolve the premise of this show, then maybe we'll just do that instead of trying to force something that maybe, maybe that's not where the show is going. Um, This is a perfect example of how we can have such a wonderful guest with such enormous insight um, and not have a doctor on. So I guess what I'm saying is I think the premise of the show might be evolving and changing a little bit. Um, Our one year anniversary will be in July and I'd like to have it sort of ironed out by then. Some quick housekeeping um, ways you can support the show. Please like, please write a review that helps out more than I can tell you. Please share it. If you tag me, if you put it in the mentions on Instagram, I can see it and I'll share it and I'll, I'll give you a shout out. If you want to send questions in, you can send them to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com or you can send them to our Instagram account at RNMD podcast. Um, and we'll, again, we'll give you your name. Uh, this is a good example. At the end of this episode, we do a Q&A and I um, named everyone who sent in questions. I'm also working on a, a Patreon so you guys can directly support the show and we don't have to have ads or the reliance of corporate sponsorship. Um, and then that way I don't have to tell you about products that I don't believe in and that you don't care about, right? <laughs> okay, my guest today speaks for herself, Kathleen Bartholomew. Um, I introduced her already in the episode, so I'm going to let myself do that. But this was one of the best episodes, one of the most important episodes to me. Um, she is just a phenomenal, fantastic, leader. She is very vocal about healthcare and how it needs to change and how to empower nurses. She's an expert on nurse communication, nurse leadership, nursing relationships, patient patient safety. She's worked with executives, physicians, um, the AMA, hospital staff to create um, better teams and clearer visions for what the profession of nursing can be. And we had a frank conversation. She's an open book. We discussed, you know, the real challenges that we're facing, especially after COVID, but even before. Um, and I hope she comes back because I could have talked to her forever. Um, so without further ado, here we go. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. This is great. Well, it was my master's thesis. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read the book. I, I can't put it down. Yeah. I, I was like obsessed with it. You should see it. It's got like highlighter mark all over through it. (laughs) Nobody's buying it because nobody really wants to improve physician nurse relationships, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have the same problem. We, I have this podcast, which that's what it, you know, in general is about. Um, and then we also do a lot of like doctor nurse relationship conversations, like anonymous conversations on Instagram where like doctors will gripe and then vice versa. Um, and everyone loves the drama part of it, but they don't love the solution part of it. They kind of check out when we get to that part. Isn't that interesting? What does that tell you? Right. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating, if I'm being honest. Um, Okay, so first of all, I just want to, uh, you know, introduce you a little bit. I mean, if you want to introduce yourself, actually. No, go ahead. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kathleen Bartholomew, RN. Um, she's been a national speaker for the nursing profession for the past 20 years. She's done speeches. She's written books. I saw her TED Talk, which is actually where I first became aware of you, um, radio appearances. And she specializes highlighting the power structure and culture to inspire nurses into action. Did I miss anything? No, that <laughs> sounded really good. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so I wanted again, to say how much I love your book. I actually have it here. Speak your truth, um, proven strategies for effective nurse physician communication. Um, you were like the only person when I was interested in this topic, you were one of the only people really diving into this and giving concrete solutions. I mean, where did that start? Well, it started with the fact that I didn't become a nurse until I was 39 years old. So when I walked into the nursing culture, when I walked into the floor, I could immediately see that physicians thought that they were more important than the nurses and that I watched these power dynamics. Uh, Physicians would not make eye contact with the nurses. Nurses would say something and the physician would hang up the phone. Uh, They just didn't seem to be, to put it quite frankly, worth their time. And mm-hmm. so uh, I noticed that, and that, that was the first power differential that I noticed, and I wanted to explain it because I saw how it had Im- impacted our patients. There was a study of 13 ICUs. I think the author was NOS, and what they did is they noticed that there was a definite relationship between the mortality rates in the patient and the physician-nurse relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was going to be my next point. I mean, in the book that you point out that poor uh, physician nurse relationships have been directly linked to patient mortality rates. Um, I mean, this is something I've directly seen in the hospitals. I mean, it definitely affects the patient care. I mean, I, I've been in the situation and I'm sure you have too, where you feel like you can't approach the doctor. The doctor's going to bark at you if you call in the middle of the night, especially as a night shift nurse. Um, and then, yeah, the, ultimately the patient is the one who suffers, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I guess I want to dive into a little bit this idea of generations of nurses, different generations of nurses and doctors. I came in, uh, I've been a nurse for about 13 years. When I started, it was very much the doctor was the head. The doctor would yell at you. The doctor would berate you. You were told when you came in, don't talk to that doctor. He's, you know, he'll be mean to you. Um, I think the culture has shifted a little bit, um, with, especially with the newer doctors. But what I see from the nursing perspective is because we have that trauma, um, and, Maybe we were trained by nurses who have trauma. Even when the doctors aren't doing that to us, we continue that cycle. Absolutely. When we match the behaviors around ourselves because we're human beings and we learn through mimicry and then we have a history. So we know that even though, for example, a doctor who's normally a really nice doctor and, and he's great to work with and he's a fantastic physician, but every once in a while he goes off and, and people don't know why. Well, as human beings, what we do is as soon as that physician comes onto the floor, we track their behavior to protect ourselves and our patient, mm-hmm. our attention goes away from the patient to, to those physicians. But you're dead on when you talk about how the relationships are changing just by generation. In fact, I had one nurse and I trained all my nurses to speak up to the physicians. And uh, it was a Saturday morning and the physician had walked up to the floor and he had opened the chart. And the nurse approached him and she said, doctor, I'd like to talk to you. And he says, just give me a minute. I need to read the chart. And she goes, well, if you'd stop, you know, and let me talk to you. I mean, she, she said, like, before you read the chart, I have some critical information for you. I mean, she was just not going to back down. And, you know, it, it was interesting to see that this is all about power and self-esteem and that the behaviors are learned by physicians and they're still learning them because there's still some older physicians, but basically the character of the younger physicians coming in is, is totally different. They're so much easier to work with. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of nurses would tell you that the problem is, is just one curmudgeon on your floor can really, you know, mitigate trust and, and, and really create havoc. It's very important that all of the physicians and nurses have equal collaborative relationships, meaning that you don't hesitate to speak up to any physician on your floor or even a guest physician you've never seen before. You don't hesitate for any reason whatsoever because your top priority is your patient. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess that, that takes me into this idea of burnout, which is a huge topic within nursing. Everyone talks about it. Um, burnout, like you pointed out in your book, it also affects physicians, right? I mean, physicians are also feeling powerlessness, especially younger physicians, uh, interns, um, and I love the the idea you can tr- you compared a nurse to like an air traffic controller like yeah. we're we're doing a thousand tasks at once and sometimes we're drowning and we see our our colleague drowning and we can't even stop to help that person and that just reinforces the the helplessness and and You're right. uh, you know it becomes yeah. it becomes a cycle. So which question would you like me to answer in that? Because you just hit upon so many. I know. I'm sorry. I'm so excited. That's okay. (laughs) What would you like to talk about first? Um, I mean, I guess, I guess, first of all, I, I just wanted to point out, uh, what you, the point that you made with the, the, it affects physicians as well. Do you know that over 300, uh, physicians, I think the last estimate for 2019 was 350 physicians commit suicide a year. Uh, we lose roughly 150 residents a year. Uh, mm-hmm. depression in nurses is 18.2%. Depression in the women in the general population is 9%. So our depression rate is double. And then you, you, you alluded to all the tasks that were task saturated. We do actually 160 tasks in an eight hour shift with no task lasting longer than three minutes. And what we've done is adapt it. So I was just having a conversation with somebody be, before I got on this call and they were talking about mindfulness and resiliency. And I'm like, that's not the point. The bottom mm-hmm. line is, is we shouldn't have to be talking about resiliency and mindfulness. Nurses, for example, shouldn't be working 12 hour shifts and we shouldn't be working eight hours either. We should be working an eight hour, a 10 hour shift, four 10 hour shifts, eight hours for clinical, and then two hours to debrief, contact our patients, seek for their education, quality improvement projects on the floor. But right now, it's just like a scene from Lucille Ball with the chocolates coming down the conveyor belt. You know, we're just, we just do everything we possibly can and things are falling apart because we're working so fast. One of the best things about nurses is we're adaptable. And one of the worst things about nurses is we're adaptable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, on my last shift, I can clearly remember that one of my patients had 35 scheduled meds. That's just one patient. And I floated to another floor. Am I familiar with these drugs? No. Mm-hmm. No, I'm mm-hmm. not. You know, mm-hmm. that is not reasonable. It's not a reasonable expectation. So, Definitely. you know, I think every nurse needs to stop and say, wait, is this reasonable? I mean, because the system and it's, so the problem isn't our hospitals and the problem isn't nurses and the problem really isn't physicians. Because now, as you just mentioned, physicians are oppressed as well. You know, mm-hmm. they're just as oppressed as nurses, especially ever since the electronic health record, which robs us to 30 to 40 percent of our time with our patients. You know, so it robs us of, of time with our patients. And uh, it's not rewarding work because what physicians and nurses you know, need the most is time with their patients. Time for those conversations. I just don't want to hand you a blood pressure pill. I want to know why your blood pressure is up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. How does it feel to you? I don't know if you've seen, um, like, for example, on social media, I follow the American Nurses Association and they say things like wellness, mindfulness, meditate, join our uh, virtual retreat, you know, uh, to de-stress this stuff. I mean, that kind of ticks me off when I see it. I'll be honest with you, because like you said, maybe they need to get involved more in the structure of the system and changing that and empowering us to do that instead of, you know, teaching us how to meditate. <laughs> Absolutely. You're, you're dead on. So when anybody joins any organization, it's really not just about the ANA. I mean, we could talk about any of the hundreds of nursing organizations that there are. The reason that there are hundreds is we're still focusing as an oppressed group and we can't even come together. But you get assimilated into the culture. And by the time you get to the top, what is normal to you You're so far away from the bedside. So I believe in many professional organizations, not all, but in many of them, there's a massive gap between the reality of the nurse at the bedside, what's happening to the nurse at the bedside, and then what's happening, you know, at an organizational level. So they think that they're helping by telling us resiliency, you know, offering training for mindfulness, when the real Mm -hmm. problem is we need to stop and say, look, this system isn't working. And if you paid attention to the research, Donna Bedian said that structure dictates process, dictates outcomes, you know that the real problem is a structure. We've got a for-profit structure. We've got a, mm-hmm. people are making money on people being sick. 
But it's a disease care system. It's not a health care system. And it's certainly not driven by nurses. Here's, mm-hmm. a, here's, a, here's a perfect example. I'm in uh, Ohio and the CFO is taking me on a tour of their beautiful brand new hospital. It's 350 beds. And I said, well, who, you know, who's the major employer in this town? And he said, well, we are, of course. And he said, actually, we're the only, only employer in, in this town. And I said, well, what are you going to do when you keep the community healthy? Where will people work then? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and said, huh? I don't understand your question. <laughs> That's not their goal. <laughs> right. Well, it's not the goal of the system, right? Right. So, so there's this discrepancy. So the care that we want to give them, when I say we, I mean doctors and nurses, I don't think is possible in the current structure. Just like we mm-hmm. were talking a little bit earlier about being asked to do something that was impossible, mm-hmm. you know, all these tasks in a short amount of time and all this charting and seeing our patients. I mean, it's, it's really task saturated is the word. And, and really, like you said, I allude to the airline traffic controllers. You know, we do that too, but they get a heck of a lot more breaks than we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's just as dangerous for us to be overworked. I mean, patient outcomes, I mean, it, there's so many studies showing uh, the detriment to patients, but why don't people take us seriously? I mean, it, it, not even just an air traffic controller, a, a pilot, for example, has mandatory time off and, and arrest periods. Wh- why, why do we have to fight for these things? Because people don't know who we are. And the best thing the American Nursing Association and any professional organization can do is to rebrand our profession. So let me tell you something really interesting. There's a book called um, The Culture Code. And the man who wrote it used to be hired by all the Fortune 500 companies. And he could find the code for selling anything, family dinners, Legos. It didn't matter what it was because he had this methodology. He'd put 30 people in a room or so and... For the first hour, he'd say, hey, we're here to talk about family dinners. And then he would ignore everything they said because he knew mm-hmm. that people will tell you what you they think that you want to hear. Then the second mm-hmm. hour, he would say, what's your first memory of a family dinner? And people would write down and talk about their very first memory. And then in the end part, he would collect all of these uh, memories and find out the code. So he did this for hospitals, nurses and doctors. So the culture code for hospitals is prison. My doctor released me. My nurse got me out. The culture code for a physician, which is very fascinating to me. It's the only time in my career my audience stopped breathing at the same time. I was working with a group of emergency room physicians. And I said, you know, when you have an infant and you've done everything, or a toddler, you've done everything you can to save this child's life. And the parents look at you and say, do something, doctor, do something. Like you're some Mm -hmm. kind of superhero. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what the code is for doctors. But guess what it is for nurses? Mother. We're a caretaker. Yeah. So um, in my conversations with um, Dr. Grant and people at the ANA, I have requested that they stop telling everyone that we're the most trusted profession. Because the only reason we're the most trusted profession, it's certainly not because we deserve it. Over 400,000, the two estimates are 250,000 to 400,000 people die every year of mistakes in the hospital. You know, and if we spoke up and if we said something about a disruptive physician or something that we saw that was wrong, I think that a lot of those lives would be saved. Right. 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 Um, I, I think the culture, that's something I'm fascinated with, too. I mean, and I, I kind of went on a deep dive. Even I read your book and it, it sent me on this path. Um, so I just want to explain a little bit for anybody who who hasn't read the book yet. Um, you know, you discuss how nursing was formed in a culture where men were obviously viewed as superior to women. The role of women was the domestic helper um, who needs supervision. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, Caretaking is considered a female role traditionally, so it allowed the doctors to assume this role of supervisor. And and I do think it's interesting, as you pointed out, that Florence Nightingale, you know, she implemented a, a holistic care model, and that's not what these doctors—they're doing a Western medical model um, that's not as holistic. So right there, right off the bat, just by history and by the way that we're taught, we're separated. Right. And do you want to see an example of that from just three months ago? So in a Washington city, uh, they desperately needed people to give the vaccine. They asked the residents at the medical school if they could give the vaccine. And they said, oh, we don't do that. We just supervise. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. all of the physicians received the vaccine. So then they went to the nursing school and they said, will you do it? And the nurses said, sure, but we're not vaccinated. And they said, well, we'll only vaccinate the people who are giving the vaccines. So the nurses are not vaccinated. 
the nursing wow. students weren't. So, so we're talking about something that happened historically. And what I'm going to do is, you know, I'm just bringing it back to today. That stuff's still happening. The medical school got $43 million. The nursing college got nothing. Right. For six weeks, faculty were asked to work without any salary at all. Can you right. name any other profession where they'd say yes to that? And, and you know, we didn't really finish the last thing you were talking about, about why do people not take us seriously and what can <laughs> professional organizations do? People don't take us seriously because they don't know who we are and what we do. And so mm-hmm. the truth about nursing is uh, a website and uh, a woman who has really dedicated her life to making sure that there are not stereotypes, you know, on TV, et cetera. But really, the public don't know what we do. And, and, and maybe that's because we can't articulate it and we don't. Because if I'm in a room with 500 nurses and I say, what is nursing? How many answers do you think I get? It's very difficult to define. Right, right. So I think that the best thing that any organization can do is to rebrand nursing as us, because we're not just caring professionals. We, we work on healing. As you mentioned before, we see the big picture. We have been trained to see the big picture. I know that somebody's not taking their meds because I've asked about the finances and I know that they've only been taking half the dose of insulin. Right now in America, 25% of everybody is rationing or, or cutting back on their insulin because of the cost. The same insulin that costs, you know, $10 in Europe is, is over $300 a vial here. I mean, so once a, everything that we talk about, it's going to go back to the system. It's going to go back to the structure, you know? So, so you're right. We have a history of, you know, being supervised, a history of being inferior, a history of a power differential. And then with education, I mean, in J- Jaco, around 2010, I think it was, started recognizing that harmful relationships hurt patients. And, and so that's why they, they, they put out announcements, you know, they put out decrees saying, you know, you have to have a healthy work environment to keep these patients healthy. And, and disruptive physician behavior is no longer tolerated. Um, I mean, so you brought up Jayco. We actually just had a conversation um, on my channel about Jayco and how Jayco basically fled the hospital when COVID happened. They were nowhere to be found. And they were the first ones to come in generally and say, oh, you're doing this wrong. This isn't dated properly, et cetera. Um, That's my fear with some of these organizations is they actually add, they end up adding more tedious work. And then when we really needed someone to show up for us, almost no one did. Right. So we're going to have to do it ourselves. And that's the bottom line. Uh, We can't expect any organization to do it. We can't expect the government to do it. And that's why I have joined a think tank called Nurses Transforming Healthcare. And we are literally transforming. We're going to create a new healthcare system. And the model that we're proposing is the adapted public utility model. I mean, if you think broadband internet can be a vital human need. I think that health would fall under that category as well. But can you imagine nurse practitioner run clinics or nurse red clinic led clinics in every area, you know, that are led by interdisciplinary council councils and you pay for your health, like you pay for your utility bill and everybody participates and it's no longer, then health is no longer a business that everybody can make money on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so y- your your group, you're proposing nurse-run institutions instead of doctor-run institutions. Yes, and not, well, you know, the doctors can if they want to, but quite frankly, they'll tell you they, they don't want to. It, the mm-hmm. reason that nurse-led clinics and, and institutions are good is because that's what nurses were trained to do. The physicians are trained to do surgery, trained to be specialists, trained. At, I mean, they have so much knowledge just about one special field, and we need them, and we need that knowledge. But, you know, I don't want to take this highly trained, specialized physician who's had been in school for a decade and have them talking to Mrs. McGillicuddy about, about why she can't lose 20 pounds. Neither The doctor doesn't want to do that. It's not a good use of resources. Right, right. So redistribute it, basically. Yes, basically, is, yeah. yeah. Put doctors where they're happy and nurses where, where, where we're not just happy, but happy, but where our skill sets match. Do you, do you think that this is going to be possible if we don't completely overhaul our entire system, like maybe a Medicare for all uh, model, you know, system or something like that? Do you think we can do it under what we have now? Abby, that, that is a fantastic question. And I have given it a lot of thought. I just finished writing a paper on it and absolutely not. I do not think it's possible. I think that nurses need to abandon all current systems and to fight for healthcare as a public utility. 
because I, unless we're focused on wellness, we're never going to get there. There is no billing code. What if there was a billing code for, you know, wellness for a nurse keeping you healthy? I mean, half of Americans don't visit the doctors as much as they should. Half of Americans had to file for, you know, the number one reason for bankruptcy is their medical bills. My daughter lost her house because her husband's in the hospital for three days. It's $23,000. I mean, only in America. You know, I mean, and we're not paying attention. The the narrative on the radio and the TV, every station you turn to has been COVID, COVID, COVID. So I sat down last year and I studied everything that happened that was not COVID. I mean, what happened to the 600,000 Americans who got cancer? Mm -hmm. I mean, like there's so many other diseases and, and I think the health of our country is definitely, I mean, the data says trending downward. Our lifespan is decreasing. Meantime, doctors and nurses are both not just task saturated, but as you pointed out, exhausted. Suffer. Mm-hmm. Let's just use the right word, suffering. Yes. They are suffering in a system that is built, you know, for disease. Absolutely. And there are a lot of companies profiting from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I, I entered nursing with this... Um, bright-eyed love and passion and fire for nursing. And over the years, it really got chipped away by the insurance companies, the drug companies, the hospital system, the healthcare system. Every prior authorization I have to do for somebody who needs something simple but life-saving for them, um, it, it just it kills you a little bit more because you realize the scope of this system. You realize that it's bigger than you and you realize that it would take a lot of movement from a lot of people and a lot of cooperation to change it. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure the people who are profiting off of it know that, you know, and that benefits them. Um, it's just, it's very difficult to mobilize, but I mean, personally, I feel like we don't have a choice. (laughs) So, you know what I did, um, a couple months ago, I decided that my profession was sick and my profession was my patient and I made a care plan for my profession. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Oh, Great I, just, I had so much fun. So my diagnosis was a failure to mobilize despite 4.3 million nurses resulting in the downward trend of the health of Americans. And then I ran it by Dr. Jean Watson. And she said, or you could say a failure to actualize the potential in nursing as a caring, healing profession. Like both of those are great. And then I put down my symptoms and I thought, you know why I love this idea? Because, you know, once I publish it, every nurse is going to know what to do. Nurses are going to know what to do. But um, no, I, I, I think that we've come to the point where we must acknowledge if you knew the data, if you looked at the statistics, it's very clear. There's a lot of people who are working hard for value-based care and value-based outcomes and they're doing a good job. But it's a bell, it's a bell curve. And the majority, now put yourself in my position, for 20 years I've traveled around the country listening to stories. So here's another story. I'm sitting at a table with two uh, executives, two CEOs from two hospitals, and I'm getting ready to do a speech. One says to the other one, I asked my chief nurse to decrease my readmission rates, you know, because now we're going to be dinged for that. You know, and darn it, you know, like she did it in four months. I was counting on that revenue for at least nine or ten more months. So when I start or, or I walk into a hospital and they have the high end surgeries that pay the most or up front and you get the big time slots or hospitals that hire seasoned, don't want to hire seasoned nurses because they're more expensive than new nurses. I could go on and on and on. So you don't control the behaviors of human. The behaviors of humans are, are the culture. You referred to that before. So who sets the culture is the structure where we're battling every day. You know, what is the bottom line? Is it money or is it? doing the right thing for our patient. But we build a system where the CEOs are forced to function. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If they don't focus on money, they can't keep the doors open. So what do you think is happening? Rural hospitals are shutting down across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. Even here in Manhattan, we've had, I think, two major uh, neighborhood community hospitals shut down. The other ones have been bought out by like Mount Sinai or New York Presbyterian. Um, and then what they do is they, it's a business model, right? They, they take the property, which is very expensive in Manhattan. They take the teams that make money and they send them to different places and then they sell the property. So then it's like, well, that's, that's a great model for them. They're making money and they're able to serve the patients at other hospitals. But what happens now is we have no hospitals in downtown Manhattan. Now, none, we have 
two around 14th street. So that's, you know, they, they close St. Vincent's the whole West side. They have no hospital. They have no care. And, and it's like, well, what are you doing for these neighborhoods now? We don't have a hospital. <laughs> right. Right. So now can you imagine if you were a nurse and you didn't have to fill out any forms to get a walker or wheelchair or home health for your patient? Can you imagine nurse red nurse led clinics, nurse practitioners that also have a somebody, a nutritionist and a behavioralist on board. Because when you look at the mm-hmm. obesity and you look at the mental health issues in the United States, no one should ever have a appointment without a mental health consult ever, ever. Mm-hmm. It's just too, mm-hmm. too high. I mean, the, the adverse childhood events that, you know, adults have, have faced and now the pandemic has exacerbated them for all. But so imagine, so Carl Sandburg said, nothing happens if not first a dream. What's the dream for nursing? And I don't see it out there. So I wrote something up, you know, imagining what would nursing look like? We have to start imagining something different and stop playing the game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I find your words very inspiring because this is how I feel about nursing too. Um, but if you walk the floors, I mean, the nurses are so beaten down sometimes. They don't want to talk about it. You try to talk even about organizing at, at a non-union hospital or something. They're like, no, 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 I can't. I can't. I don't have room for that in my life right now. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, it becomes difficult sometimes to get everyone uh, mobilized. And if we don't do this now, after you saw people wearing garbage bags during COVID, if we don't do it now and reclaim our power, I don't think we ever will. That's an interesting statement. So I was talking to a, you know, it's a sad one. Um, I was talking to a nurse leader yesterday and I said, so what's the hope? What's the hope for nursing? Aren't, aren't you advocating for change? And the nursing leader responded, no. She said, I'm not because it's going to take all these new nurses leaving and saying, I've had it. I'm not doing it anymore. And finally, when there are no nurses, maybe the public will value us. Maybe then they will notice. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, and let's get back to the PPE that you alluded to. Did you know that in Somalia, when the pandemic hit, the nurses said, we're not going to work without N95 masks? And they didn't. And they got them. And, you know, in the United States, we were betrayed. We were yes. betrayed by the very organizations that were meant to protect us. I mean, we were leaned and mean so that we had nothing. But that teaches us something about the future. We're not prepared. Are we prepared for the next pandemic or the next major earthquake? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. We're not because we're reaction. You know, have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? You know, whack-a-mole. You know, that's what healthcare is, yeah. whack-a-mole. You know, I'll give uh-huh. you a pill for this. I'll give you that. You know, it's just we have to stop. And, and, and look at the big landscape. And actually COVID gave me a chance to stop. And it gave me a chance to, to look back and say, wow, I have been treating the symptoms of this oppressed system for 20 years. I've been teaching people how to get along, how, how to have great teams, how to have trust, how to speak your truth, you know, and, mm-hmm. and really how to be resilient, how to, how to form communities. But, you know, none of that would be necessary if we just didn't have this business structure. Right, right. Um, Wow. I mean, I think I'm on still the beginning stage, maybe. I'm still at the team building and and that that kind of... um, But now that you point that out, I mean, yeah, maybe we wouldn't need this if doctors were happy, if nurses were happy, if we could serve our actual patients instead of typing at a keyboard, maybe we wouldn't um, even need to explore these issues. Well, we're not happy because we can't do what we want. Both of us know. I mean, you and I, and I'm sure many of your listeners, uh, I have had fantastic physician-nurse relationships in my career. I have been so blessed. I mean, and when you work with a team, when you work with physicians, where the physician listens to you, asks your advice, wants to know your opinion on something, where you collaborate for the best outcome for the patient, it just, I mean, there's no greater feeling in the whole world. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. like flying with the blue angels. There's such synchronicity. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just amazing that that partnership saves lives. But little by little, we've been robbed of time with our patient, of, of unbelievable paperwork, of you know insurance companies that make us fill out form after form after form. These are things that are a waste of time. The real question is, you know, do do the 4.3 million nurses, do Americans believe that healthcare is a privilege still? How adolescent, right? You know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me get this straight. So broadband is a basic vital need. Healthcare's not. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, do you know that the same thing, there's historical precedence. The same thing happened 
with FDR for electricity. The rich people had the electricity, poor people didn't have it. There was access problems, there was cost problems. You had, you know, it was something special. Not everybody could have electricity. And finally, you know, FDR said, you know what? When a system is ineffective, broken, you know, it's not doing the right thing, the public has a right to make that system a public utility. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I haven't seen a better model so far. And the reason I like the public utility model is because it's American. Mm-hmm. It's not Democrat. It's not Republican. I'm like, let's just get away from the playing field. You know, I feel like this political polarity is the Democrats is a football game. Democrats versus the Republicans. And then the football is the health of all Americans, which you make some yard gains. You know, we made some with the Affordable Care Act and then we pull back and then we didn't have enough gains. And then we make some with value based care and then we pull back. But the mm-hmm. bottom line is we keep getting tossed back and forth. It's time to leave the field. Mm-hmm. And the players have great health insurance. That's the ironic part. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I want to go back to, to what you said about um, the newer nurses leaving the bedside. Um, I, I see that happening and not, not, you know, a hundred percent, but a lot of the nurses that I know and that I speak to around the country, they are getting, um, their NP or, you know, a, a master's generally, and they are trying to get away from the bedside. Um, are we going, we already have a nursing shortage, right? Are we going to be without nurses at some point? I mean, Oh, absolutely. Do you want that? I mean, to help to, to propel the profession? Well, so I've been advocating for nursing faculty for, for years. You know, they are the bloodline of, of our entire profession and we are losing nurses. And, uh, do you know that the faculty make half the salary of the nurses that they graduate? So the pipeline is so broken that there's a shortage projected of 504,000 nurses for 2025. We're only talking about a few years from now. There's also a shortage of 75,000 primary care physicians who are going to be retiring. There's not going to be the physicians to do primary care. That's why it would be great to get the nurse practitioner-led clinics going. So I think our goal as a society should be the same as it, what it is for fire, for fire stations. We don't want the firemen going out and on fires all day long, putting fires out like they do in healthcare. We want them trained, ready. You know, that's the way we want our hospitals. I want nurses trained. Uh, specifically trained, I mean, specially, specialty trained, having the time, I want the hospitals empty. Uh, hospitals need to be converted so that because we're going to have less, if we keep our Americans healthier, then, then there'll be less patients in the hospital. So how do we make use of that space? Well, perhaps we could create uh, wards for di- diabetes, for example. And, and the, on this ward, you don't just come to get your blood sugar level evened out, you go to learn how to have a lifestyle and you stay for 21 days and you learn, you know, with your family members, how to cook meals and you, you get people around you who also have the same illness and you create support groups, et cetera. I mean, I can see a lot of potential for what we can do, but our goal is to keep the hospitals empty. We want Americans healthy, but we're so fear-based. Do you know that there's only two countries in the entire world that allow advertising of pharmaceuticals on TV? Right. Yes. That's crazy. Um, I have a friend who came here from Australia and she was shocked. She was like, I can't believe it. She said, we sat here, we saw four commercials. Uh, we've been sitting here watching Dateline or something and, we, and we've seen four commercials for drugs. She said, I never saw one in my entire life. <laughs> right. You Be afraid. You might get this. Be afraid. It's restless leg. Be afraid. And we're immune to the, to the, they, they have to read the disclosure. You know, but they say it so sweetly, maybe and has been proven fatal. Right. Can cause serious disease, loss of all of your arms and legs. And it doesn't matter. We don't even listen anymore. Right. You know, right. We, we're yeah. just numb to it. So we're the market. There's a wonderful nursing researcher. I think she's at Penn who's done uh, all this research on the media messages that we get bombarded with daily. So, I mean, what is the problem? Is the problem that we don't have an objective media that advocates for the every person, but everything's sensationalistic? You know, mm-hmm. for example, when Trump was president, if we cover that, we get more people reading and listening. So let's just cover that instead of the important thing. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any thoughts about is some of that by design? Because that's something I get caught up in. And I know it is a bigger issue. It's a systems issue, like you pointed out, and that the CEO has to play in this system, um, to survive basically. But I do wonder sometimes if 
there are meetings of executives sitting around saying, well, if we give, if we make sure that we fill a nurse's time, every minute of her time, and maybe even a little bit beyond his or her time, um, then they're less likely to organize. They're less likely to think about these things. I mean, do you think that that plays? No, I don't think that plays, but I, I'm smiling broadly because the name of the article that I wrote is called By Design. And you just said it. So yeah, by design, all these happen. No, there's not people sitting around doing that, but there are people sitting around saying we have to make the maximum use of a nurse's time. For example, my girlfriend works in an organization where I can't remember the name of the device. She has to wear it and it tracks all of her footsteps and it gives her pattern every day to her boss, you know, so, and she has to wave her hand in front of it every 15 seconds, you know, and she, if she doesn't wave it within 15 seconds of walking into the room, then she's dinged. It's like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Like I wouldn't work one day in this organization in Washington state, not a day. Like, what are you doing? There's no trust, no trust at all. So, um, yeah, are they, they're, they're basically working nurses to death until they're exhausted and leaving. And then I, maybe then they'll pay attention. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I have some listener questions, uh, that I, I said, Oh, I'm doing this thing. And I, I put your book on, I, I showed actually, I had in my stories, I was like highlighting like crazy and people, so people got really excited. Oh, so there's, cool. there's a lot of questions. I know, um, I don't want to, you know, go too far over on time, but, um, we'll get to as many as we can. Um, so just quickly, I want to say thank you to David and Jesse and Michael and Jennifer. Um, Okay. So some, some of these, I mean, we're talking about systems and higher level concepts. Some of them just had some th- advice questions that That's they great. wanted That's yeah, awesome. their day to day. Um, okay. So this comes from a medical student. He's going to be an intern, uh, in July. He said, how do you deal as, as a nursing manager, how did you deal with nurses that haze med students and residents? Oh, what a great question. And that does happen. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that as a manager, what I did is I would set the tone for anybody orienting on the unit, nursing students or residents. I would speak to the residents before they even came onto the floor and ask and tell them that if they had any interaction that was less than professional or supportive, that my door was open and I wanted to know about it immediately. But you know, we didn't have those problems because we actually formed a community of people who were really caring and open you know, on our unit. So mm-hmm. if you are a med student and if you experience this, the best thing to do is to pull the person aside and say, can I speak to you for a minute in private? And then say, and then tell them what happened and ask them, was that your intention? Because mm-hmm. what I need is your support. Mm-hmm. And what I'm counting on is your support. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that- that's one of my favorite tactics, even when we're talking about lateral violence, nurse on nurse violence. I like to clarify with the person and their tone. Ninety percent of the time it will change. You know, you say, I just I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. <laughs> so we have to realize that this hazing comes from displaced power. Right. It's right. not like a nurse wakes up in the morning and thinks to herself, you know, I think I'm going to find a med student and be really mean to them today. It's because they're so frustrated because they can't get the resources that they need and the time they need that they act out, but it's not acceptable, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So Jesse asks, uh, is there a way we can find happiness in our healthcare system when we know the system is so flawed? When you know it's flawed? So that's an excellent question, Jesse. I think that you, the best thing you can do is, is not pretend that it isn't flawed. You can see that it is flawed, but you also just can never forget who you are and what you're doing and why you're there and focus and don't underestimate the power of one person. You're Mm -hmm. showing up, you're being a role model for what the entire system can be is what we need. Knowing what you know now about the system, when you changed uh from the bedside to becoming more of a nurse empowerment nurse advocate speaker leader um what advice would you give to yourself back then when i was at the bedside Mm -hmm. oh i didn't know that i was afraid i just didn't know it i didn't know that i monitored the environment and i didn't know that the way things were supposed to be because my first nursing experience was one where the powers the, the physicians dominated. It was in the South. 
it was in North Carolina and they just dominated. So I didn't know what a professional nurse was supposed to be and what the relationships were supposed to be like. You know, mm-hmm. some people have just come out of nursing school into a wonderful working environment. So my advice to you is, is like, we think that what we walk into is normal. So be educated and know what behaviors are acceptable and what are not, what are professional and what are not. And then just always use that anchor in yourself. Never forget who you are and how you can do that is by always speaking your truth. You don't have to be right, but always say what you see. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you can begin with those three little words. I noticed that you rolled your eyes when I gave you the patient information. I noticed that nurses hesitate to call you at night because they're afraid that you'll be angry. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you raised your voice. I mean, just say what you see. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that's great advice. So there's a question here about uh, master's programs, uh, nursing programs. A lot of people are in school right now. A lot of the programs, not all, but some of them have been described as really frustrating from a lot of the listeners because uh, you're learning a lot of theory, you're learning a lot of nursing models. um, And and sometimes people have wrote in and said, a lot of this seems really useless. Like we have a lot of really big issues in healthcare and that's not what we're learning. We're learning these nursing models. Do you find those models applicable to what you're doing as a nursing leader? That's a really great question. So I did a study. One of the frustrating things that nurses are learning in master's programs, especially is a lot of nursing theory, but the theory classes are now being dropped. So I did a survey on Shamir's stethoscope and uh, 2,000 nurses answered me. And I asked them, were you taught in nursing theory? And if so, do you use it? And it was really interesting. About 60% of the people you know, we're saying, yeah, I was taught it and this is who I use and this is what I use. But a lot of people said, nah, I don't use that stuff. That stuff's mm-hmm. useless to me. But then their peers countered and said to them, you, you use it. You just don't know you're using it. It's the foundation of how you think about a problem. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that one of the most frustrating things is that we're packing way too much education And some of the stuff is unnecessary, but you have to remember that some of it is fundamental. It teaches you how to think, how to grasp a situation, how to, I mean, I can think of models and things that I learned in my master's program that are are really pivotal in what I'm saying to you right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, the oppression theory that I learned, you could say, oh, that's just worthless, but look what I've done with that oppression theory. You know, I've applied it in different ways. And the most important thing to me about uh, learning about those power dynamics is is the answer, which is how do you get out? How do you stop you know, the power dynamics? And that is by raising your own self-esteem and the self-esteem of the people around you and lifting the veil. Let them see what's really going on. So, yeah, the pace of the master's programs, I cried through mine. Actually, I would have never gotten back. I would have never gotten through it. Uh, on the very first day, I met another student and she saw me crying and she was crying too. And we split the work in half. So if we had mm-hmm. 10 chapters, she'd read five. We just met an hour before class and I, I would have I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. But you're saying is it applicable to nursing practice? And I think it is. And not all of it, no. Would would I throw twenty percent of it out? Mm, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd replace it with real life experiences. Maybe that um, maybe that's actually a better point that not that the theory isn't useful. It is. I mean, I, I use some of my theory, but some of it, um, that I have learned also, it, it can feel sort of, uh, basic or it can feel sort of like I, you're stating the obvious, something we do all the time, you know? Um, and it's like, I don't mind learning that, but also can we move on now? Can we talk about why don't we have Medicare for all? I mean, can that be part of our curriculum? You yeah. know? <laughs> So um, when you say Medicare for all, it's so um, stigmatized with politics, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, basically, you know, isn't a public utility health care for all? And, and mm-hmm. don't we really want maybe nurses should just start saying health care for all? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, is there anybody you think when you look around you that doesn't deserve health care? No, it's it's actually it's ridiculous to me that we don't. <laughs> that we don't just give it well, as a basic human right. It's immature. We're a young nation. We're only a couple hundred years old. So we're not acting like the older, more mature nations who understand that the health of their citizens is actually the health of their country and their economy and take mm-hmm. great steps and measures to protect. And I look at my daughter, I'm here in her house after what, three, 
leave, not even four months. She has to go back to work whether she wants to or not, or she won't have benefits. Can't even go back part-time. Can't cut them even 10 hours a week. Have to be away from your three-month-old baby. Right. Exactly. I mean, I, I was just reading something about how, uh, most women return two to three weeks after having a baby, um, simply because not even just the benefits alone, but also because their profession, because their professional reputation, they'll be passed over for promotions, et cetera. I mean, that's a whole nother <laughs> episode, right? Oh, that's why Amer- <laughs> that's why Americans don't take vacations and we have the least amount of vacation because we're afraid that they'll see that we are dispensable and that they really didn't need us after all. So we have the highest mm-hmm. amount of you know, vacation non-use, I think, of any other country. So we've Mm -hmm. talked about so many things here, the fear base, the culture, the structure, the power dynamics. You know, I don't know what it's going to take for us all. I'm so happy that, you know, you've invited me to have this conversation because the more people that hear it, the more can go back to their own environment and maybe just stop for a minute and look at it and go, wow, it's not me. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's not even the institution. Right. You know? Right. Right. And um, I'm not the only one dealing with these issues. It seems like it's almost everyone having these problems. Yeah. My adopted daughter just quit five years. That's all she made it into nursing. Cardiothoracic nurse, emergency room nurse, fantastic nurse. Unbelievable. We're gone. In fact, I put it on LinkedIn. I put Requiem for a nurse and I wrote a Requiem for her. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I see that they're, they're leaving in droves. I mean, the burnout is just immense here. I mean, we're talking about, at least in New York, the med surge nurses, they have eight patients each ICU during COVID. I had four patients regularly. I mean, you, and these are, these are paralyzed patients. You know, these are not patients that are easy to take care of. And like you're talking about 20, 30 meds each and IVs and pumps and drips and all this stuff. I mean, it is very, very difficult and there is no margin of error. The second you make one error, I mean, and the amount of stress. Yes. And because of what you're saying, the amount of stress is absolutely beyond comprehension. So maybe the best thing that every nurse can say is, I've had enough. No, I'm not doing it. No, I can't take four patients. I can only take Mm -hmm. three. If you want to give me three today, I can do that. No, I can't take that extra admit. No, I can't work an extra 12-hour shift. I've talked to nurses who have worked over 20 12-hour shifts consecutively. It's uh, it's unrealistic to to keep that. It's not your problem that your unit is not staffed. It is not yours to solve. You take care of you. Right. But whatever you do, keep that nursing license. Oh my gosh, this has been wonderful. I just, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I, I find everything you do just so interesting. I'm going to link all of your, your books and your TED Talk and everything um, in the bio for this. And well, thank please you. come back. I would love to continue this conversation. We can dive in a little deeper. Yeah, okay, that'd be a great idea. I'll send you the latest article I'm working on, and maybe we can talk about the care plan for nursing. I would love that. Yes, whenever whenever you get it um, finished, please come back and we'll discuss it. Okay, thank All you. All right, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, you okay, too. Bye-bye. Bye.